invite you to stand as we uh, turn in God's Word this morning once more to Acts chapter 7 and as we look at verses 37 through 50. Again, the words which I would like to draw your attention to this morning come to us from Acts chapter 7, uh, beginning there at verse 37 through verse 50. Hear the word that God has given to His people. This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. This is he who is in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai. And with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us. Whom our fathers would not obey, but rejected. And in their hearts they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses, who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol, and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god Remphan, images which you made to worship, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? Amen. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, you once more have given to us your perfect and inerrant word. And to God we pray that through the power of the Holy Spirit that we will heed your word and rest and trust in its truth. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Yeah, I... I often have uh, the blessing at presbytery meetings to listen to licentiates and students of theology give their uh, beginner sermons and their midler sermons and then their ordination sermon. And one of the uh, reoccurring themes, if you will, uh, that all these young men uh, like to use, it, it seems like this is taught in our seminaries, Uh, that you either have to reference uh, the Lord of the Rings, Chronicles of Narnia, or Pilgrim's Progress. It's amazing how often those three continue to pop up in uh, their sermons. And uh, I indulge your uh, uh, mercy this morning as I use an illustration from Lord of the Rings. 
you know, the, the, the testimony of that a whole series of books you know, has at its center, of course, a ring. And what do we see happen with the ring? Every time it comes into somebody's possession, they you know, become as wicked as wicked can be. But we also see, of course, in the whole kind of story arc, uh, with uh, the, the gentleman in the Hobbit who discovers the ring to begin with and then is the great kind of scourge of, uh, uh, of the men through the series that his entire body changes during uh, the whole series of books. And one of the things, of course, that Tolkien was attempting to kind of portray through uh, that ring was the nature of idolatry. The way in which objects especially can become uh, these uh, kind of centers of sin and these centers of wickedness. You know, every, every time as they get closer and closer, of course, to Mordor and, and throwing the ring into, uh, the, uh, into the volcano, uh, what do we see? We see the attacks uh, becoming more vicious and more uh, focused and more directed uh, towards Frodo. And one of the things we see going on in Acts chapter 7 is the way in which as the idols of the Pharisees and the Sadducees continue to be attacked, we see them growing and growing in their anger. And of course, we saw the same thing in the Gospels. As Jesus begins His ministry, as He begins to teach, you know, at first He's kind of a, a curiosity at one level. At another level, they say, well, you know, He's just like John the Baptist, and if we kind of leave Him alone, He'll go away. But the intensity of the anger builds and builds, and as they come to kind of the climax they finally get Jesus under their control. And as they get Jesus under their control, what happens? He goes to the cross, He dies, and He rises again on the third day, just as He had prophesied. And everything that the enemies of the Gospel had attempted became even more powerful after the empty tomb. And of course, you're thinking back once more to Lord of the Rings and, and what happens once he gets the ring in his chest and he has it and you see that kind of, in the movie, you see that kind of, uh, you know, that wry smile on his face as he falls into uh, the lava. And as he's consumed by the lava, he, as he has finally what he wants, what happens to him but he is destroyed. And that is exactly what we see going on in the hearts and the minds of these Sadducees and Pharisees who are consumed in their wrath against Jesus Christ. You know, it's interesting the type of idolatry that we see uh, in, in encompassing and taking hold of these Jewish men. You know, they love Moses. They love Moses more than any other thing. It's, it's amazing how somebody as godly and as wonderful and as a testimony to the goodness of God as Moses can become an idol. 
But in fact, that's exactly what we see happening. Their understanding of who Moses is has blinded them to who Jesus Christ is. They have seen Moses as the exemplar, as the one in whom they are to abide, the one in whom they are to rest. Of course, that's been the focus of this entire argument between Stephen and the council. Where is the rest to which the people of God has been promised? And ultimately, where is the rest of the Lord our God to be found? You know, that's what's going on in this argument over the destruction of the temple. Remember, that was what they had originally arrested Stephen for. He'd been arrested for teaching what Jesus had, that the temple would be destroyed and that it would be raised up in three days. They looked at the temple as the source of their peace, the source of their comfort, the answer for all of life's troubles. And as they heard these men attacking their idol, attacking the place of their comfort, of course they're drawn to want to silence these men whom they have seen as blasphemers. And that's the entire focus of this back and forth that we see in Acts chapter 7. It's understanding where the true rest of the believer is. You know, even in the old covenant, and that's one of the reasons why Stephen goes back to Moses himself and quotes from Moses and quotes from the prophets to show these men that their understanding is not only flawed, But their understanding is anti the message of Moses himself. You know, if you love Moses this much, let us go back to Moses and see what Moses has to say. Again, what did Moses say in verse 37? The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. And of course, what has the great prophet said? That in three days I will destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. What has this great prophet said? He has been prophesied himself by John the Baptist that one that greater than Moses is here. And again, the one that Moses had prophesied is here. But of course, that's not what the Pharisees and the Sadducees want to hear. Again, they want to have their preconceived notions about who Moses is confirmed by their prophets. Again, when they go to the synagogue on Saturday, they want to hear what they believe Moses to teach. Remember, that's how Jesus gets himself in trouble to begin with. You know, what does he do in Nazareth? He goes in the synagogue, he reads from Isaiah 41, and what do the people want to do? The people want to throw him off of the corner of the village into the valley below. And why do they want to do this? Because remember what Isaiah 41 had prophesied. Isaiah 41 had prophesied that God would send someone, that that someone would be the one who would redeem Israel from her sins, and that one would be one in whom they were to listen. But that's not what they wanted to hear. 
That's not what they wanted to hear about on that Saturday morning as they entered into the synagogue once again. They again wanted to have what they understood to be the truth to be told to them once again. You know, this power of idolatry is so central to those who do not understand the message of the Holy Scriptures. And of course, not much has changed in the past 2,000 years when it comes to idolatry and the hold that it has on people. Most folks today are not rejecting Christianity because they love Moses. Most people today are not rejecting the message of the Gospel because they want to go to the temple in Jerusalem. That's not how idolatry has manifested itself in our day. But again, the power, this hold that idolatry has upon the human heart is the same today as it was in the garden itself. When we think about what Stephen is teaching us, again, it's much more than the fact that Jesus was prophesied by Moses. What he's laying forward for us today is to call each one of us to examine our own hearts And to see what it is that keeps us from hearing the words of the great prophet. What is it that we bring not only into worship but into our daily lives uh, that causes us uh, to uh, not just ignore uh, but uh, to uh, reject what it is that God has said about X, Y, or Z. And of course, this isn't just a problem uh, in uh, the evangelical world, but of course, is a problem throughout the Christian church throughout the centuries. You know, when we see, for instance, uh, over 500 years ago, you know, when when, when uh, Luther nailed his 95 theses on the door at Wittenberg, you know, what was the real problem then? Well, remember, when when Luther nailed those 95 Theses, there's not really anything much in there that we would agree with today. uh, Uh, Luther was not concerned about justification by faith alone in the 95 Theses. That's something that he came to understand later. What he nailed on those, uh, those doors had to do with the sales of indulgences. And what was the sales of indulgences for? The sale of those indulgences was for the building of the great basilica of St. Peter's in Rome. And what was the purpose of Leo X in building that great basilica? Again, he mouthed the words that you're supposed to, right? You know, Leo X said this was for the glory of God. You know, it's for Christendom, for uh, the glory of Jesus Christ. But what was Leo X's main purpose there? It was to, to kind of centralize power within the Roman See. Because remember, what was going on at that time in history? You know, the, uh, the Saracens, the, the, the Muslims were, were at the gates of Vienna. You know, they had uh, still were actively involved in the Reconquista in Spain. And so the idea was, is if we build this giant cathedral, that everyone will gather together and there will be a centralized power in Rome. 
And so we see in that entire scene there in 1517, we see as uh, the reaction against Luther has almost nothing to do with his theology. It had to do with his attacks upon the idolatrous nature of the Roman see. And that's why they react in the way that they do. You know, theology was kind of a secondary matter uh, for most of the cardinals involved in that fight. And that's what we really see going on in Acts chapter 7. What we see going on in Acts chapter 7 is the last uh, gasp of, uh, of these men who see the power that they want to hold going away. Because again, what are they seeing around them? What, what is the scene in Jerusalem in Acts 7? As the council looks around, they see thousands and thousands and thousands of men and women coming to faith in Jesus Christ. They see not only Jews, but Gentiles coming to faith in Jesus Christ. They see the fulfillment of all of these Old Testament prophecies coming to pass. Because again, these men aren't ignorant. These men know what they're seeing. In fact, we hear that, especially in the discussions in the Gospel of John in the midst of Sanhedrin. They recognize that Jesus is the Messiah. But what are they afraid of? They're not afraid of losing the temple. They're not afraid of losing Moses. They're afraid of losing their control over the Jewish people. And what we see here in Acts chapter 7, again, as Stephen is, is making this clear, is he's, he's driving this point home, is he is declaring to them of the nature of not only idolatry, but of their false understanding of what true power is and what true authority is. And that's why in verse 38, he brings up the scene in the wilderness of the building of this false idol while Moses is up on the mount receiving the law. It's it's an interesting scene, of course, there in Exodus as Moses is up on the mount and as the people are gathering around, as they're kind of milling around, waiting for Moses to come back. Again, notice what Stephen does here. Again, Stephen makes clear Uh, what is also made clear in Exodus, uh, but it's always helpful to hear it again, of what the real problem was. Look at verse 39 real quick. What does it say there about the fathers? Why would they not obey but rejected Moses? Because their hearts, in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. Now think about that for a moment. What does it mean that they turned their hearts back to Egypt? Well, what did they have in Egypt? They had slavery in Egypt. Is that really what they wanted? Did they want to go back into slavery in Egypt? Was was that the desire of their hearts to return back to this this time period where they had to make bricks without straw, where they were restricted in movement, where they were owned by the state? Is that really what's going on here? No, the idea here is that they would rather live under the moral dictates of the Egyptian gods than obey the moral teachings of the Ten Commandments. Because think about what the Egyptians did. Of course, you think about ancient Egypt and you think about the lives that the people led. Of course, they were not much different than what passes for goodness in our own day. 
You know, they loved sexual promiscuity. Uh, they loved uh, the, the, the entertainments of the day. Uh, they loved all of the kinds of things that our wicked culture loves. And that's really what the Israelites wanted. Uh, they were willing to put up with slavery in order that they might indulge the desires of the flesh. Because again, think about that for a moment. This is really something about the nature of idolatry. The way in which it consumes the heart. It consumes the whole being. It consumes the mind. Because again, we would gladly sit here and tell ourselves that we would not give up the Lord Jesus Christ and give up the things of God in order to go back to slavery. You know, that's, that's kind of one of those things in our own culture which is almost beyond the pale, the idea that we would go back to slavery. But again, think about the way in which the Apostle Paul talks so often about uh, the temptations of Satan and the temptations of the old man. You know, what is it uh, that he warns the Corinthian Christians so dearly about? That they are longingly looking back to their former manner of life, looking back to Egypt, looking back to the way in which they used to live with that kind of longing nostalgia because they do not want to heed the commands of the Lord. Because they look back at the way in which they used to live and, and tell themselves in their heart, well, it was better when I was allowed to act and to do this. But again, we, we, we are very good, as, as the Corinthian church was, at telling ourselves that we are not like that. That we don't think like that. That we uh, don't uh, ignore the dictates of God's Word in order to indulge the flesh. But again, think about these, uh, the, these Jewish men once more. Again, what do you think they talked about most often on, on Saturday morning in synagogue? They would stand or sit in that, in that culture, sit in their pulpits and talk about how much better they were than the Romans. How they didn't live like those profligate Romans. How, how they didn't act in the way uh, that these Gentiles did. And they, they would sit in their pulpits and be thankful that they were not like uh, the Roman soldiers who inhabited their land. And again, that's, that, that's the nature of idolatry, isn't it? It's the nature of, uh, uh, of that, that placing of oneself above what is common to the human nature. And one of the things we see again in what Stephen is doing here, in, in placing uh, the, uh, the, the Jewish men and the councils here in the place of uh, these unbelieving fathers, is notice what else he says in verse 42. He says, Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. Do you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god Remphan, images which you have made to worship, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. You know, this, this quotation here of Isaiah 66 and Amos chapter 5 is an interesting way of applying uh, these idolatrous truths once more to these men who are listening to Stephen teach. Again, the Pharisees especially saw themselves as being the heirs of the remnant of faithful Israel. 
You know, they of course held the, the Sadducees in contempt, held uh, the other uh, Jewish uh, men and women uh, as being kind of secondary and, and wicked. But here, Stephen is claiming they are no better than their fathers who committed great uh, idolatrous and wicked acts uh, with the gods of Molech and Remphang. I mean, you talk about fighting words. I mean, this is about as fighting word as you can get comparing the so-called faithful Israelites of the first century to the most wicked of their ancestors who caused the people of God to be put into exile in Babylon. But notice something here about the way in which Stephen uses these words. Look there at the end of verse 43. He says, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. Think about that for a moment. What does it mean to go beyond Babylon? Well, those who went to Babylon, what happened to them? They came back to Israel. What about those who went beyond Babylon? What we see the pro, uh, we see Stephen doing here is laying forth the testimony of the reality of what happens to those who rest and trust in these idols, who, who, who allow themselves to be consumed with idolatry. Is not only will they be given over to these things, but they will be sent beyond Babylon. Of course, that's reality for any who place their faith and trust in these things, uh, these images, these material things which are passing away. And of course, that is really where the idolatry is in our generation. It's in these material things that are passing away. Again, how often do so many of us find our comfort and our peace in those things that are passing away? When we are struggling uh, with life, when we are uh, struggling with various things that we are facing from day to day, we turn to those material things to give us happiness, to give us comfort, and to give us peace. But again, where are the believer to turn in moments of not just uh, doubt, but in moments of sadness and, and in pain and in anguish? Again, are we to turn to the idolatrous things that, are, that, that have not only uh, passed away, but are unable to answer the true longings of the human soul? Of course, we, we will testify to ourselves at this moment that no, we are to go to the Lord Jesus Christ. But again, how often do so many of us, myself included, who, who turn to these things rather than to the Word that God has given to His covenant people? And not turning to prayer, not turning to the fellowship of the saints, not turning to the worship of the church. Again, these things that God has blessedly given to His people. These things that God has provided for us that we might, again, find true comfort and true peace in the temple made with our hands. Again, that is really where Stephen is driving home his point in his message to these men. Again, you trust in Moses because you do not understand the God to whom Moses trusted. You don't understand who Jehovah is because you are looking at these things, these things made with the hands of men and thinking they are what God is. Rather than understanding the nature of who the true God is. 
And one of the things we've seen in our time in our study of the book of Revelation is the nature in which this idolatry, of course, has continued throughout the generations and will continue into the future. And what is it about that particular teaching that we see in the book of Revelation about these things? Is that so often we see the, the wicked nations and those who have the mark of the beast and those who are, who are heeding the commands of Satan and of the wicked prophet and of the harlot who are continuing to find and look and struggle and search after the pleasures of the flesh. And what do the pleasures of the flesh uh, result in for those who have sought after them generation after generation? Of course, we we know the answer to that. We know the answer to what happens to those who trust in the flesh. Eternal damnation and hellfire awaits those who rest and trust in the things of the flesh. Again, that's that's the the obvious answer. Of course, we know these things. Again, one of the things that Stephen is calling each and every one of us to this morning as we examine the idolatries of our own heart, the idolatries of our own minds, is to think upon these things and make that determination within ourselves about what he is saying here. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. Of course, what does it mean to hear? Of course, obviously that means to use your ears. But Israel heard God over and over again. God sent him sent them prophets over and over again. And what did they do with the words they heard from the prophets? Well, as you know, we often say of our own children, they went in one ear and came out right the other. There was no nothing got caught inside. It went straight through. And what happens to Israel because they did not heed the words of the prophets? The prophets who spoke the words of the living and the true God? Well, they did, most assuredly, get carried away beyond Babylon. There's another thing that Stephen does here that's important for us to see. is Notice what he says in verse 38 about what the fathers received. The one who received the living oracles to give to us. Again, these words that were spoken to Moses, these words that Moses spoke to the people, these words that the prophets spoke to the Israelites, these words that Stephen is speaking to us are living oracles. These are not dead letters given to other people. But these are words given to God's covenant people from generation to generation so that they would not just hear the teachings of the Scriptures, but that they would listen to to the words of their heavenly Father. For God has sent His only begotten Son. You know, we say that verse over and over again. But again, think about what it teaches. God has sent His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but shall receive eternal life. What does it mean? What does it mean to have faith in Jesus Christ? Well, ultimately what it means is that we rest and trust alone in Him. That we trust in Him for our salvation, for our redemption, understanding that none of our works will earn our place into heaven only by the imputation of His righteousness as any of us saved. 
Again, think about what Jesus says in John 15 about those who have been planted by the king. Those who have been planted by the king as they rise up out of the ground, they will show forth the fruit of that faith. They will show forth the fruit of that trusting in the words of the king of kings. They will love his commandments. They do not see them as burdensome. They will not in their hearts long to be back in Egypt where we could do what we wanted to do. But that we would live in the light of the good news of the gospel. That we would look to this temple made without hands. Who dwells within us. And who dwells with His people for this day and forever. And that we would ultimately long to be in the heavenly places with our Savior and with our God and with the Holy Spirit rejoicing forever and ever. And as we close this morning, we do so with the words of Moses in Revelation chapter 15. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb sang, Great and marvelous are your works. Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways, O King of the saints, who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name. For you alone are holy, for all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we give thanks again that You have revealed these truths unto Your people. That, dear God, You have called us to rest and trust in You. That You are uh, the giver of life. And that You have opened our hearts to receive these truths.